0: All right, it's good morning, everybody. Welcome again to our church. Like Spencer said, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're visiting for the first time or uh, maybe you're still new ish to the church, uh, welcome. We're glad you guys are here. And we are right in the middle right now of a greater sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. And it's the longest of the first four books, which we call the four Gospel accounts, that all together tell us the theological history of Christ's birth and his ministry and his death and resurrection. So in a lot of ways, if you're newer to the Bible, it's a, great, it's a great time to be here because we're talking about the climax of the whole Bible. Everything really comes to a head here. And not just with the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, but specifically his mission, which is his death and resurrection. Because that is what the Bible says is the locus of salvation. It's what he came to really do, is die for people. And like we just sang, to be a sacrifice of atonement to remove sin, to overwhelm death through his resurrection, and to bring us back to God. So that's really what Christianity is in a nutshell. And and the Gospels are great. If you're newer to the Bible, to start there because they quote the Old Testament so much and they fulfill it. Jesus is very clear. He's the the goal and the ultimate promise fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And so everything's pointing to him. And these earlier parts of the Gospels, too, and that's where we are right now in Matthew. We haven't quite gotten to the cross yet. That's going to come later in the year. But everything he's doing in the earlier parts, teaching, talking, healing, delivering the demonized, uh, all his miracles are in some way setting the stage for the cross. So that's a great way to interpret the Bible, these early parts of the gospel accounts, but the Old Testament as well, to see them as, as we're saying here, demonstrations, so shadows or types or pictures of the cross and the empty tomb, which will come later, or flat-out declarations. And today is a great passage because it's a huge hinge point, in the Gospel account of Matthew, if you were outlining this book or reading it for the first time, uh, you would you would note this: that there's a lot of giving way from shadow to light, from the beginnings of things to the fulfillments of things, from not so clear things about the cross and the empty tomb to very clear things. Or to use these words, from demonstrations of the gospel to flat out explicit declarations of who Christ is and his, so his identity and what He came to really do, His mission. So we've been been connecting those dots or making those connections throughout this series because we have the whole book. We know what happens. We live on this side of the cross in the 21st century here. We know what happened, and so we can look back in in these earlier stories and make connections with the cross. But again, if you were outlining the book or reading it for the first time, it would become all the more clear that a big shift is happening towards a clearer gospel, Jesus' identity, And uh, so forth, his mission is going to become very clear today. And it's this little exchange he has with one of his disciples, Peter. So uh, we're going to see that next week uh, as well when he gets crystal clear on what it means that he's the Messiah or the Christ, the King, the the Son of God. That he must suffer and die. That's going to come next week, but just little hints on what's coming. But today is just this first exchange with Peter when Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it is uh, seven verses, Matthew 16, uh, 13 to 20. This is the great, I like to call this the big question drop. It is the question of questions. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? So Christ asks this of Peter and he asks who the people think that he is. But the question for us is, wherever you guys are spiritually, who do you say that he is? Because what you you say about him and his mission will determine everything about what you believe about the scriptures. And ultimately, as Jesus says here, your eternal state. So, Let's go into that now, Matthew 16, 30 to 20. We're just going to read uh, this in three sections. Not going to read the whole thing to begin. We'll just allow the story itself or the exchange to unfold as we go. Uh, but Matthew 16, 13 to 14 to begin. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So Son of Man is uh, an Old Testament term. references the Messiah, but he's talking about himself. Who do people say that I am, essentially? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So in context here, Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee with his disciples in a boat after an exchange, somewhat heated exchange, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, some Jewish religious leaders. And then he just drops this question. Again, it's the question, who do people say that I am? And later he's going to ask Peter flat out, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? But first, who do the people say? And they have a number of things here that all kind of fall into the same category. They mentioned John the Baptist, who had such an impactful ministry in Israel preceding Jesus' that a lot of people looked at Jesus and said, he must be John the Baptist resurrected because his ministry is so significant. And others call him Elijah, who was also, he was an Old Testament prophet who was uh, long deceased. Actually, he was one of the guys that actually just uh, rose up to heaven, didn't experience death. But they were expecting this Elijah to come back as the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, predicts, before the day of salvation, before this great and terrible day of the Lord, well, God will bring salvation for all of his people. The Bible says this Elijah figure will come back right preceding that. And so a lot of people thought, this is the guy. Look at how he's teaching, how he's operating, what he's talking about. He's talking about judgment-type things, but also great comfort, salvific-type things. But that's not accurate as well. A lot of people thought this, but we know from the Bible that John the Baptist was this Elijah guy. He was the guy that resembled... Elijah uh, of old or some people think an actual resurrected or an an Elijah who would come back uh, in terms of what you think about that's not too important but we know that John the Baptist was this uh, Elijah figure still some though thought didn't make that connection and thought Jesus was either John the Baptist or um, the Elijah kind of saying the same thing Jeremiah one of the prophets uh, that just means effectively that he had such a significant ministry that a lot of people just thought he's he's worthy of being counted among the prophets of the Old Testament. But whatever angle you take on this, they're basically saying the same thing. The people believe he's a prophet. In other words, one who speaks for God or God speaks through, who performs miracles at times, who accompanies great judgment, and also who promises great comfort from God, or actually may enable that comfort and bring that comfort um, as well. But especially a pointer to all of that. So that's basically the, the context here for the next exchange, which is the more important one. So the first thing is, who do people say to them? People are basically saying, he's a prophet. He's clearly a sent one from God, but they stop on just the prophet, at the prophet level. But then he continues, Matthew 16, 15 to 17. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, to all the disciples, but who do you all say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, just means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, a couple of really amazing things here that, uh, again, just tell us a ton about Christianity and and in comparison to other perspectives on Jesus that Jesus says are flat out wrong. So, we're going to first look at Peter's confession, then we'll come back to this idea of of Jesus just saying, This has been revealed to you. Uh, This is not something that flesh and blood or you have figured out. This is something God has made you uh, understand. That'll be second. So let's look at 1 Peter's confession. So the first is a focus on that and the strong conjunction but. So the, uh, there's a difference here between Peter, what Peter confesses, kind of on behalf of the disciples, but really just from him. This is his idea. It's what he believes Jesus to be, his identity and ultimately his mission. But there's a strong conjunction there. So it clearly differs from The peoples And the difference here is fairly obvious on one level. We're going to dig deep here and look at some of the the deeper things going on in terms of the differences. But on one level, it's fairly obvious. If we have a proper definition of what a prophet is, and then also look at what Peter says and see the the heightened difference that he makes between the two. But the but is the strong conjunction. So it's clear. Just the way that Jesus is talking, he's saying that might be partially true, but it's not fully accurate. What do you say? This is what the people say. But what about you? A conjunction linguistically is huge there. So the people believe, and as we look at these two things juxtaposed, the people believe Jesus was effectively a prophet-like pointer to God. So prophets did. They spoke for God, but they were a big pointer to salvation. They talked about it on the horizon, but it wasn't located in them. But Peter's confession takes it to another level. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, making himself equal with God. And that's huge. Peter might not be. This is important to understand, too. We start talking about these things for the next few minutes. Peter isn't necessarily connecting all the dots here theologically. This is still before the cross, before God reveals himself in that type of manner, before the resurrection, before that type of clarity is brought to him, all the disciples, the early church, the world, ultimately. But he still is understanding a lot because God is giving his understanding. So some of these things, it's okay to say the confession caters to this, even though he might not quite know what he's saying. It's okay to acknowledge that, and that's, I think, what we have to operate under um, as we go forth here. But still, Peter's confession is another level. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Son of the living God, which makes, effectively, Jesus equal with God. John 5.18, elsewhere in the New Testament is uh, big here, uh, that plays into this equality idea with the divine, with God. Uh, it says this, when, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So again, we could play further on the idea that the people believed that he was John the Baptist or a prophet-like guy and say that in comparison, the people believed Jesus was a preparer of the way, so to speak, but Peter's confession caters more towards this idea that he is the way. The people believed he was the beginning of something great. Peter believes And his confession states that he's the end. The people's perspective, by definition, looks for something else beyond the prophet, something else he's pointing, something else beyond Jesus, while still acknowledging the greatness of Jesus. But Peter's perspective in his confession sees Jesus as the end goal, the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. So the difference, again, is a pointer to something greater versus that's the people's perspective as a prophet idea. But the confession of Peter, again, is more the essence of something great. Which, again, if, you've been, if you're newer to math, you newer to the Bible, newer to this series, understand that Jesus has been speaking in these radical terms up to this point and has made it clear that he's not just a man. The disciples at some points just say, who is this guy that even the sea and the wind and the waves obey him? Basically saying divine. Or elsewhere in a different part of the scriptures, people worship him as God and he does not correct them. Angels will do that in the Bible. and Whenever an angel is worshipped by people, an angel will stop them and say, I too am a created being like you. You must not do that. But when Jesus is worshipped, he doesn't correct them because it's right for them to worship Jesus because he's the Son of God, making himself equal with God, part of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, I want to mention this one more time. Even though Peter's not connecting all the dots here necessarily, He's on the right track, and God is granting this at least partial significant revelation of the identity of Jesus and his mission. The trajectory is God saves through Jesus Christ, and he's more than a man. He is a Savior. And this is, this is the crux of the matter right here, not just right in this passage, but for all of us just uh, as we are confronted with biblical truth, when someone asks us, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus asks us this right today in this passage. God, the Holy Spirit, is asking us this whether we're Christian or not, what about today? Who do you say that the Christ is? Is he just a man? Is he a prophet or is he something greater? So who you believe Jesus is then, this is these are absolutely inseparable. Who you believe Jesus is and his mission affects, or, or what you believe about his identity affects what you believe he came to do. So identity and mission are very, very crucial. To unpack that a bit, is he just a prophet? The people's perspective caters more to that. Is he just a man? If you believe that, then the most we can say about him, and we'll follow a little bit of a progression here, the most we can say about him is that he came to point us to God, but not actually be God as Savior for us. He came to live a great life for us to marvel at and copy to the best of our ability, but but this perspective says, the cross was nothing more than a shining example of humility and a great turning of the cheek for us to emulate. The gospel of this perspective would basically say, be like me, and you will enter the kingdom of God. This is what Unitarians or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, fill in the blank, almost, I mean, everybody really, uh, except a true biblical Christian would um, would say. But if he's more than a prophet, this goes to Peter's confession idea, if he's the Christ, the Son of God, who is equal with God, is he the God-man, then we can go much farther and conclude that he himself is the essence of salvation. He is the door. He's the final prophet, but he's much more than that. He's the essence of salvation because we know in the Bible, salvation comes from God alone, not from people. It comes directly from God. So the cross is not, cross is not a byproduct of his more important teachings earlier in the Bible, but rather it, it is the most important thing. It is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures and all of history, the locus of salvation itself where God dies as a human being, but fully God still. God dies for his people Bearing their sins, the just for the unjust, it's substitution. So the true gospel of this perspective, you can go one more actually, Seth. The true gospel of this perspective then in the bottom here is trust in me and you will enter the kingdom of God. You guys see the big difference? The gospel of the former is be like me and you will enter the kingdom. The latter one is trust in me, depend in me, look to me. And the confession of Peter really caters that. Peter's just saying you are the son of God. In other words, you are Savior. You are God in flesh walking among us here to save, which is not saying anything about ourselves or anything we are called to do except just to confess and believe and state that he is, in fact, here and he's sufficient. He is God. He's Savior. He's substitute. He's advocate. He's the lover of our souls. He's died for us on a bloody cross. That's what all of this is building towards. Again, here it's partial it's all building towards this. so we're going to see later when the church confesses this after the cross, it's really in line with this confession that God gives this great, but albeit partial revelation to to Peter and the disciples, especially Peter on. So notice here then at the end, when when God says, blessed are you, Simon, another name for Peter, uh, he's renamed Peter later, but blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or God has revealed this to you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you. This is not something he says about the people's perspective. So it's clear that Jesus is saying, Peter, you have the right answer. And the people's perspective is at best partially true, but if not flat out wrong. He does not say, blessed are the people for believing I am John the Baptist. Blessed are the people for believing I am the Elijah. Blessed are the people for believing I am a prophet who performs many miracles. We're not blessed in that state because we're just getting partial truth. So important to get that. There is a right and a wrong here. This is not a a dance. There's no synergy between the two. There's a clear, imperfect, at best partial truth moving to full-blown Christ, the Son of God. This is his identity and, relatedly, his mission. All right, so that's the first piece is just to look at Peter's confession and understand its difference over and against uh, the peoples. But the second thing is, I'm going to read verse 17 again. The second is to, to hit on this idea of God revealing this to Peter And what that tells us about grace and how we're saved and how Peter just got this thought in the first place. So, verse 17 again says, And Jesus answered him after the confession, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But God who was in heaven. So, blessed here means essentially, it's another word for saved or being back close with God. When the Bible talks about being blessed, It's usually a synonym for being in close proximity to to God, all the way throughout the Old Testament scriptures. There's other words for it, but basically he's saying, Saved are you, Simon. Saved are you, Peter. Blessed are you. Close to God again are you for believing rightly in who I am and my mission. But then there's this statement of authentication, which is huge to get. But flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Feel the weight of that. That's massive. But God, who is in heaven. This is so, 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 so good and so easily missed. God revealed this to Peter made it possible for him to to understand it and believe it. In other words, flesh and blood, other people, but also Peter's own flesh and blood, did not come to this conclusion himself. This is massive. And if you are here last week, this is a great contrast to what we saw, remember for those of you who were here, with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these Jewish religious rulers who demanded a sign from Jesus before they would believe. They demanded to see a miracle, demanded a bigger bigger than that, a sign, they called it, something just massive, un, undoubt, undoubtable proof that he was, in fact, who he said he was. And Jesus says, no, you're not getting that, because the contrast here is, and we talked about reasons for that last week, but the contrast between the two is just stark. We don't approach God on our terms. We don't get the revelation that we think we need, or God, God uh, owes us before we're saved. God gives that graciously. This is like, this is beautiful, stark, saved by grace, not by works type stuff here. We don't approach God. God approaches us. We don't reveal ourselves to Him as great people. He reveals Himself to us as a great and loving and gracious God. We don't save ourselves. God saves us. Even the act of belief here itself cannot be claimed as a work of ours. You guys see how the lengths to which grace goes here? it's unbelievable. I mean, if, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ today, be free in the fact that God has caused that belief in you. He has wooed you to himself. He has led you to a person or a church, a truth. That, and he's He's, he's opened. He's lifted the veil. He's opened your eyes. He's He's loosed your ears to understand the gospel. And you can't lose that because he's given it. I mean, even, even that is a gift. So that we can't Picture God as a zillion miles away, kind of revealing truth, and it's up to us to figure out the mathematical equation and do all the algebra and the, and the calculus to, to figure them out. It's not the gospel. The gospel is God comes to us, and he opens, he softens our hardened hearts and our hardened minds to his amazingness, and, and, he, and he leads us to the cross Beautiful that way. That, that is, you might not feel this right now, but maybe like on Wednesday you will. It'll just like pop into your head, and you'll be like, wow, there it is. Uh, But that is the most freeing thing you will ever hear in your life. Ever. Because it relates to the cross. It's not about you. It's about God. This is about a God who was relentless in his love for us. Relentless in his pursuit. Relentless in his revelation of his identity and his mission. Even here, partially for Peter, but fully later on the cross. It is effectively yet another trumpet of scripture blaring, saved by God's grace, not by what you do, save by the immense love of God shown us on the cross and the empty tomb, not by works so that no one can boast before him. All right, then he continues in Matthew 16, 18 to 20, the last three verses. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so again, two things here I want to focus on, like the last section. The first is the church is talked about. We'll talk about that. And the second is this strange thing that Jesus says, you got the right answer. It's like the question of questions, and you're, you're on target. But don't tell anyone that this is the case. It's like, what? So we'll talk about why that's the case uh, here in just a minute. But first, church is talked about. This is the first time the word church, which means assembly or the, the assembly of God's people, it's actually uh, points us back to Israel, which a different word, similar word was used uh, for them on occasion. But the church is the ultimate Israel, Jew and Gentile gathered underneath the gospel, the saving work of Christ. In any case, the first time church is mentioned here, uh, this explicitly in the the New Testament, we don't hear much more about it until after Jesus dies on the cross and raises again because that's how he actually accomplishes and and earns, you could say, the church. He creates the church uh, through that because without belief in those events, there is no no assembly of saved people. There is no salvation. There's There's no kingdom that benefits us. So after the cross and the empty tomb, we hear a lot about the church. Like in the book of Acts, the first book after the four gospel accounts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts uh, tells us a ton about the first church and what happened there. But note here, Jesus' is tense is future. I will build my church. So, so Peter's saying, you've confessed this, and you're correct. And on you, Peter, I'm going to make you a significant figure in, in the early church. You're going to be the first preacher, give the first sermon. I'm, I'm going to build the church around you and, and the apostles who were formerly the, the disciples. But apostle means these initial sent ones who will be the first overseers and pastors of the church in Jerusalem. And the rock on which the church is built, then again, is Peter himself. And there's a play on words here going on in the Greek. Uh, Peter means stone in Greek. Uh, Petra is Greek for rock. And so there's there's a play on words here that Peter is using, if you understand the Greek linguistics behind the statement. But uh, regardless, this does not mean, as traditional Roman Catholics claim, that Peter has exclusive authority in the church forever, like he and his successors. Roman Catholics traditionally, uh, to this day, claim that in varying degrees throughout church history. But and nor does it claim that he has some kind of proto-papal authority. It never says that anywhere here, as you can see. It never says that here or anywhere in the Bible. It's just acknowledging that Peter will be the main disciple to initially preach, to oversee the beginnings of the church, and otherwise lead. That's all it's saying here. And we also see this great power of which the church will be granted. It's So much so, this is a, I love this statement. We actually have a network here of church planners in the city that base its name off of this verse. The gates of hell will not prevail against the offensive onslaughts of Jesus and his people. Uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen. We We call it m sixteen eighteen. Some of you guys know that, uh, m sixteen eighteen. a group of local church planners. We just love that because of what, what, how church is talked about here in a wartime offensive, slain darkness uh, type matter. So what's the power and authority that we have? And again, we gotta go back to Peter's confession for the answer. The the authority the church is given is granted to us by Jesus and is wrapped up in a proper confession of his true identity and his mission. In other words, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his death and resurrection and and our, our preaching of that which we see, what do we see the church do in Acts right away? Going back to that with Peter, he gave the first one, but the church tire, tirelessly does this. They tell people that Jesus is a savior of them. They preach. So authority is wrapped up in preaching, evangelizing, sharing through a casual teachings and very formal ones, encouragement through the word of God, but just telling people about what God has done in the world. And, and the book of Acts is clear. The word of God and that is the thing that multiplies, it's almost like the word, the Bible is like multiplying and growing and bearing fruit and saving people and allowing the church to grow and expand. So, so much so then that the binding and loosing, verse 19, is uh, somewhat cryptic and has been, I think, misinterpreted quite often uh, by, uh, by many. Uh, but what's basically going on there, we shouldn't overcomplicate it. We have to link it uh, to come with what comes prior. When he talks about the keys of heaven being given to the church, He's referring to door-like imagery and and talking about binding and loosing, opening and shutting, essentially, with those keys. And so basically, he's just talking about the church. He's saying when the church preaches the gospel, like we are this morning, or in whatever setting, formal or informal, big or small, whenever we evangelize and preach and teach the word, open up the Bible for people, what we're really doing is opening up the door of the kingdom and loosening people and allowing them to enter. And the response, though, is contingent on what God is doing in their life and if they have hard hearts or soft hearts, but if they neglect the gospel and don't enter, it's a type of binding. It's a type of locking. It's a type of closing of the door. So the Bible is clear. Jesus alone has the keys to death and Hades. That's from the book of Revelation in the Bible. He controls, ultimately, because he has authority over it. He rose up and overwhelmed it. He has the keys of death, and he, he's that door. If we go through him, we go to eternal life. He opens that door. He calls himself the door. I am the door, he says in the Gospel of John. He's the way in to the kingdom of God and what he does for us. But because he's so much that and there's no other way, it's also fair to say he's the locker of the door if people reject him. He's the binder of people if they reject him. He's the, close, he's the shutter of the way if people reject him. So this is incredible. And I want to make sure, especially if you're a Christian, most of you are here today, that this is one of the best places to go in the Bible to understand your mission and the wartime mentality that we are in, whether you feel that or have ever believed that or not, it is a reality that's bigger than you. It's going, around, it's going on around you all the time. In this very room, in this city, there's a war going on. There's a door being opened. There's a door being shut. There's angels in battle. There's people picking up weapons in a spiritual sense and just going after it. And with the keys of heaven in hand, opening possibility in a way to eternal life. It's an incredible authority that we have, and when you when you preach the gospel or, or it just leads someone to Jesus in any capacity, you are literally opening the doors of heaven before them. Jesus has given you authority to do that. Amazing, we get to do that first of all, right? But the fact that it's just happening is incredible. That Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside of us, is blessing our words and saving people here in South Minneapolis and and beyond. People are hearing the gospel and entering entering the door. Us, right? the church, a ragtag bunch of sinful misfits, uh, but loved and saved and equipped and given authority by God's grace, uh, nonetheless, uh, to, do, to do these things. This reminded me of uh, C.T. Studd was a missionary in the late 18th century, just almost everywhere globally. But uh, one of my favorite things he's always said is, some wish to live among many comforts in this life, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I just love that. What a name too, right? <laughs> if I could change my name, I think I'd choose Stud. But anyway. Um, the, but this is great because this is basically, this is, I like this because this is, he's saying this is what I want, but I think you could also spin this and say this is reality itself. You know, some, some are pursuing comfort more than wartime gospel expansion type things, but regardless of what they're doing, you know, in, in the church, this is just happening. There is a rescue shopping in the yard from hell. There is. Do you want that? Do you want to be a part of that? This is the war, and the gates of hell are defensive. Keep that in mind as well. We're on the offensive. Gates are defensive measures. You might feel like darkness has the upper hand in your life, that sin is the upper hand, that the devil has the upper hand. We might feel that, but it's just categorically untrue that it's the case. If you're in Christ, you're on the winning team, and you're fighting a winning battle, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the offensive onslaught of the church. Praise God. And it's because of Jesus, it's because of the cross, it's because of the empty tomb that all that's happening. It's all by grace, but we're welcomed into it. You can look at any of the, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, how frequently God delivered Israel through a judge, through a king, how they were type, a head-type figure, and how Israel followed them into battle many times, or after the judge would kill the other king across enemy lines, the people would go into war after them because they know they had the victory. And it's just a matter of going and finishing the job. It's like that now. Jesus is the ultimate king, the ultimate judge, the ultimate slayer of the other enemy, the binder of the strong man, the defeater of death. And now we just run into battle with the gospel as our ultimate authority and the keys of heaven and and unlock it for people and open it up, just like it was for us. If you're a Christian here, somebody with the keys of heaven told you about Jesus. They unlocked the door for you and you believed and and you walked in. Do that for someone else. You know, we can't acquiesce and, and become comfortable where we're part of what it means to be human, and Christianly human especially, is to be a creature underneath the creator, a worshiper of him, but a participator in his mission as well in this world. And this is just beautifully indicative of, of his mission. Finally, verse 20, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So, proper response here is, what? in the world, is going on. Better question, though, is why? Why is he saying this? Aren't we called to tell in the Bible, everyone, the literal ends of the earth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who has died on the cross for their sins? And the answer is, of course, yes. The Bible unashamedly says this. At the very end of Matthew, Jesus will say this to the church. Go to the ends of the earth, go across the street, go to your city, go wherever God is calling you, and preach the gospel. That's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So we're called to evangelize the nations, but what this tells us is the cross itself is the reason for the difference. So on the front side of the cross, don't tell anyone. On the other side, after God dies for the sins of the world, tell the nations. Stark difference, right? So it tells us that the cross is the reason. So then we have to ask, how does Jesus' suppression of his identity and, his, and, and, you know, related to his mission, how does that, you know, lead to the cross and change things afterwards. And we've talked about this already in this series, so for some of you, this will be review. But if this is new, this is so important to get. The answer is kind of two-headed here. First, what Jesus is doing is helping to ensure that the events leading up to the cross, and God is, Jesus is always, always intentional. Everything has to happen in a certain way, because he has to fulfill the Old Testament in certain ways, like dying on Passover, for example. We'll talk about that later in the series. But he's helping to ensure that the, those events don't get short-circuited. It's very clear that he's in complete control of his own death at the end. There's so many times where he could just veer off the course and not go to the cross, but he helps ensure that that's going to happen. So cool. And we just see so much love in that, that God did that with us in mind, with the glory of God the Father in mind in us. It's just incredible. So that's coming later, but he's helping to ensure the timeline here in general. But also, relatedly, he's helping to ensure his own rejection. Remember that God and Jesus had to be rejected by ultimately us, but in this particular case, be rejected by the Jews so that the cross would happen, so that the salvation of the sins of the world would be accomplished. Rejection had to come, and so the suppression of his identity and the suppression of his, his mission, to a degree, some are starting to get this, of course, but it's not full-blown revelation until after, but to a degree uh, has, has to occur. And that's partly why He's doing this here. It's really the only answer. I mean, it's to say that no one, no one should know the saving knowledge at this point is just, for any other reason, it's kind of silly. And it paints a bad picture of God, actually. But if you paint it in, like he's loving, he's, he's controlling the cross because it's our ultimate need and he wants that to happen. So he's doing everything in his power, including suppressing his identity here to ensure the cross happens, to ensure the empty tomb happens, to ensure death is overwhelmed, to ensure the ultimate enemy is defeated. He's doing that out of love. So in short, he has to be rejected. He's got to do it. He has to die in Passover. He's got to die on a cross. So to to wrap this up then, three things, and I'll just summarize. The the first thing, the most important thing here, wherever you are spiritually, maybe especially if you're not a Christian yet, still just figuring this stuff out, learning the Bible, the first is just to call to belief and trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's a savior. He's an advocate for you as a human being, but also God. He's the perfect bridge between sinful humanity and a perfect divine being, a loving father. So he's an advocate. He's a substitute. He's a ransom payer. He's a death slayer. That's what he is. Believe in that, trust in that, and you too will be saved from your sins. And then rest in that. The father, God, reveals salvation to you. You don't find it. And if you feel offense, by the way, at that statement, if that's offensive to you, that's really good because it means you're understanding it rightly. (laughs) This is offensive. This is a gospel that offends. It's called elsewhere in the Bible, the rock of offense because wrapped up in that statement, God causes you to believe, you don't find him, is we're too sinful. We can't do it. It's, It's related themes, right? And so it actually really lowers humanity. Even though we're loved, it lowers our potential and ability. We're too dead in our sins to to understand these great, high, wonderful things about God on our own. So God has to spur us to make that happen. But if that's offensive, that's really good. It means you're understanding the weight of this. But you have one, one of two ways to go here, though. I mean, make no mistake on this. Not to believe that or to ultimately submit to it. To not believe in that, that God reveals salvation to you. It's not about you. To not believe in that is to think more highly of yourself than you ought. To believe in that is to think less of yourself and more of God, quite simply. Gospel stuff, straight-up gospel stuff here, right? But to not believe in that is to think much more highly of you and your potential and ability and intelligence and inner goodness than the Bible teaches. But to believe in that is to say, I bring nothing to the table but praise God that there is a God, first of all, and that he's this loving, and he's this sacrificially loving at that, that he's gone the full length to save me from my sins. And then third, engage. Uh, verse 19, I don't think I have that here on screen again, but uh, this, uh, this is still the idea of the church advancing against the gates of hell is still true today. The gates of hell will not prevail. It's a promise. We know the end. There is no chance that evil will win in the end. There's no chance darkness or death will win. It's guaranteed by Jesus that darkness is being overrun and by the onslaught of the church and Jesus being our head. So do you see how central church is to the growth of his gospel in the world here? This is one of the great, I think, polemics here for the value of the local church right here. It's the church that does this. It's not an individual renegade Christian who does this. This is the local church. This is one of the great polemics for church planting, for new churches, for expansion efforts uh, around the world. Church planting globally and across the street and elsewhere in the city and in New York. I mean, it's, it's, this is a polemic for that because we have to start churches. It's the church, it's a community of Christians teamed up together that preach the gospel in a variety of beautiful ways to a dead and dying world and to each other to ensure their perseverance. God's chosen means by which he is damaging darkness and overrunning death and just finishing the battle, really. He's already won, but finishing the job through his people, created in his image and being called his body on the world. So it's just an invitation to engage. And maybe some of you have never really fully engaged in a church or been on mission or ever shared your faith with anybody, and a lot of you, I think, are in that place. And we love that in one sense because it means that we have people who are entering a local church for the first time here at Hiawatha. We want that. We want non-Christians here to hear, learn about the Bible. We want brand-new Christians that are barely familiar with the gospel, that are learning how to be on mission, and we want that. But if you know, talk to us as leaders. We, we want to invite you to that, and we'll approach you to probably at some point, at least in big picture levels, and invite you to be a part of the onslaught of darkness, uh, which, again, and to hold those keys for people, which is very simple. It's not very, you know, majestic and just extremely magical when it's going on because God works in the simple, the mundane, the weak to bring about the powerful and the eternal. You know, so it's going to be through that. Just the simple sharing your faith, being kind to your neighbors, expressing the kindness of God to them, talking to them, having them over for dinner, Inviting them to church, sharing the gospel with them. That is, that is kingdom of darkness gate crashing I mean, right there that, that you're doing. Believe it or not, it, regardless of what you believe about, it, it is. Biblically, it's what Jesus says it is. So engage in that. It, it, we're doing that at Hiawatha. It's part of our mission. We're always going to be doing that. Join us if you're not already engaged in that type of, that type of uh, local church, death-destroying, darkness-defeating battle that we're all called to in Christ. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16. Thank you for saving us from our sins, for being not just a prophet, but the Son of God, who is God in flesh, the perfect advocate, human advocate before a holy God who is perfect in his own life and who died died a death on a cross, the just for the unjust. God, thank you for um, who you are, what you've done for us in that, that it's by grace that we're saved, but also grace that we understand, that we have freedom in that. God, thank you for, being, for giving us participation in the advancement of your kingdom around the world, giving us keys to unlock the door of heaven when we preach the gospel to people, and also contingent on their response to shut it. But God, we pray that people would enter, that they would be loosed from their sins, loosed from the chains of sin, loosed from slavery to sin, and that they would enter once and for all. Uh, God, maybe even right here in this room today, Uh, But we pray for this city, for more and more people uh, to be saved through proper knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. How much, much he loves them. And the extent to which that you have gone, God, to show your love and your mercy and your grace for us. Praise God forever that the gospel is true. Pray for belief and rest and engagement, God, those three things to be very, very true in our church this week uh, by your grace. uh, Prompt us by the spirit uh, to that end. In Christ's name, amen.